0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: ShiftWork, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN. We're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow ShiftWork on your favorite podcast app.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have the incredible writers, Matt Rodbard and Daniel Halsman of the new book, Food IQ. When food writer Matt Rodbard met Chef Daniel Holzman while covering the opening of his restaurant, The Meatball Shop, on New York's Lower East Side, it was a match made in questions. More than a decade later, the pair have remained steadfast friends, they write a popular column together, and talk, text, and DM about food consistently. Now their new book, Food IQ, they're sharing their passion and deep curiosity for food, home cooking, and the food world zeitgeist with everyone. Later in the show, we have a show from our archives with the artist and incredible muse, Juliana Bartwick. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN.
3: We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Please excuse my hoarse, non-COVID-related voice. This week, I was screaming into the void this weekend, and it has not come back. Uh, I am so deeply excited for today's episode. Uh, We have a friend of Snacky Tunes, Matt Rodbard, and his partner in crime, Daniel Halsman, authors of the new book, Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes, to raise your cooking smarts. Here on the show, gents, welcome to Snacky Tunes.
4: Hey, buddy. Thanks so much for having having us.
2: Matt, I I think this is like, three, four, five uh, times on the show, one of our most frequent returning guests. And no surprise, because every few years, you seem to put out something incredible. And I just want to start by saying this book is amazing. I had So much fun reading it. Um, I tried to take notes to guide our conversation, and then I realized I was just copying the whole book. So uh, it's really done its job. But I want to go back a little bit before because our guests know Matt, but we don't know Daniel. So Daniel, uh, maybe you want to give a little background on yourself. And Matt, also, you can do a little refresher too.
5: Um. A little background on myself. My name is Daniel Holzman. I was born in Booton, New Jersey. When I was, <laughs> I'm uh, 42 years old. Um, I, uh, I don't have a lot of hair on my head. I got gorgeous blue eyes, according to my mama. Um, I started working in kitchens when I was 13 years old, delivering food uh, at a pizzeria across the street from my house, and then um, got real lucky. And a friend of mine's father was a maitre d at a fancy restaurant, so I got to start working at a, you know, like fancy Michelin star restaurant, very, very young and fell in love with the kitchen and the camaraderie of the cooks and the, you know, everything, everything restaurant. Um, I opened a restaurant um, late in my twenties and in San Francisco. And then my buddy, Mike turnout said, Hey man, I want you to move to New York and open this restaurant with me. And I moved back, uh, back to my hometown where I'd grown up and, um, I don't know, open, opened the meatball shop, which was a kind of really well accepted and exciting. And then the rest is history, I guess, open in restaurants, got suckered into it.
2: And Matt, a, a quick refresher for our audience and some of the books that you have talked about on previous episodes.
4: It's nice to be back on the show. I I feel we were just at Roberto's the other the other day, but that was like maybe eight years ago. The, I I've wrote a book with Dookie Hong called Koreatown, and I think that was probably one of the last times I was on the show. And I, I'm the editor in chief of Taste, which is a, a food and culture publication that we just celebrate our fifth year of public pub, publishing. Um, but right now, it's Food IQ. I mean, this book that Daniel and I have been working on. Um, we know each other for ten years. So this, this book is 10 years in the making. Our friendship goes back to when I met Daniel at the opening of the meatball shop down on Stanton street in Lower East Side, New York. I was there just to, to interview these, these two young chefs who were opening this restaurant. And Holzman was uh, like a magnet at the time. He, he was a magnetic, curious, uh, full of life gentleman who, who gave me a lot of inspiration um, over the, over the years to um, think deeper about food? Uh,
2: it's a really incredible partnership. Um, one from the culinary standpoint and one from the editorial standpoint. And I love in the intro, how it's just like, Matt asked Daniel a million questions and this is the impetus for the book. Daniel on the receiving end of it. Um, was any question too small or were you happy to field all of Matt's queries?
5: Um, well, <laughs> was there any question? I think you're 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 giving me uh, credit. Fielding his queries were actually getting called out uh, by him when my answers <laughs> didn't live up to, you know, necessarily what I would expect of even myself. Uh, that one of the greatest parts about Matt as a true journalist, he usually knows the answer to the question he's going to ask before he asks the question. And so my quest, so when my if I'm not well, he's a very, very well-researched journalist. So when my answers aren't necessarily true and I, I, I'm very glad to have a partner who calls me out when I'm, when I'm, when I'm not up to snuff.
2: And, And what's a good example of Matt, uh, you already knowing the answer and just setting Daniel up for absolute face
4: <laughs> I mean, I like, let's go about, t- let's talk about tuna. So I, I knew that, like, I was asking, like, okay, so, like, how do you get the most out of a can of tuna? Um, I knew deep down that Ortiz is the brand. Like, I knew that tuna packed in oil was the way to eat tuna. Like, that's the way I've always kind of done it since... Uh, since I've been you know writing about food, I mean in you know, the last ten years, but the, the the kind of beauty of the way these we worked through these questions was I learned a lot about tuna conserva, talking to Daniel and about the way you can like cook with tuna conserva and and put in grilled rapini and, and chickpeas and make a really great salad with it and thinking about it as not a something for a sandwich but for like its own side. And this was like two and a half three years ago when we started thinking about tuna conserva. Um, so yes, I did know the answer to that. I was not. We were not going with the uh, the bumblebee packed in saltwater variety, but which, know. by the way,
5: um, also happens to be delicious and is you know a staple in my cupboard. Um, it's just like cooking. We you know we use different different products for different outcomes. I wouldn't necessarily use super fancy tuna for a tuna sandwich, and I and I wouldn't use the cheap stuff for uh, to highlight you know my my salad niçoise.
2: You know, um, I was born and raised Jewish household, tuna and water, COVID convert of tuna and olive oil and never going back. So I was delighted to see that discussion in in the book. Uh, I want to get to the book in one second, but um, when did this start to take shape? When did 10 years of conversations go "Mm, this should be a book?
3: I think think that
5: we we worked... I'm sorry, what I was going to make an off uh, 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 an inappropriate joke. So I'm glad you cut in.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how it goes. But no, I was going to say, <laughs> seriously, we started writing a column for Savour, and I had to give Max Falkowitz a shout out. Max was an editor there and, and gave Daniel and I a shot to write about some of our favorite neighborhood restaurants in New York that happened to be from Southeast Asia, Asia, East Asia, uh, South Asia, Indian, Japanese, Chinese. And we wrote this column and we kind of started developing these recipes around our travels, around the the boroughs. Um, So we started creating together and and writing together um, as writing partners. And that evolved into a column on taste, which we wrote for a couple of years called 100 Questions for My Friend the Chef." And out of those columns, we wrote two columns together. We kind of were like, oh, maybe there's something more. What do you think, Daniel?
5: I think that basically uh, that basically sums it up. You know, the idea of of um, uh, uh, the best restaurants. I'm a restaurant guy, so my analogies. The best restaurants always um, start small and grow into something amazing. You know what I mean? It's like if your sales are great right off the bat, you can only go downhill from there. This was one of those ideas where we started working. Um, and putting, putting together something and it's grown into this, which feels very special.
2: Like I said, the book is amazing. What I love about it is it's not really like a foodie one point, at least my own interpretation, not really like a foodie 1.0 book. Like you're not picking it up and being like how to boil water. The, the questions that you attack are actually questions that I have asked and Googled over and over again. Um, Another COVID thing is I taught myself how to cook with a cast iron because I absolutely ruined it. I'm afraid to touch a wok after what I did to my first one 10 years ago, potatoes, et cetera. And we'll get into it. How did you narrow down the questions? Um, how were you able to kind of be like the audience for these questions is such and these are the type of questions that we're going to go after versus a much more introductory book, which which I don't believe this is?
5: Oh, I'm it's waiting for chef. you because you're the foodie 2.0 guy. That's like your whole Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt, was Matt, that, that's Matt's whole world. He was like, you know, we're writing this cookbook. We need to identify first. Like a am really, you know, like a great journalist. You say, who am I writing this for? And he needed, he was identifying that, you know, there's a thousand books that teach you how to do the basics. And so what is a non Googleable question? What's a question that, you know, that you really need to, 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 to trust the, the, the person who's answering it in order to get uh, get to the source of, of the information. And that's where, you know, you should talk about the foodie
4: 2.0. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the point of our statement that the foodie is one or the foodie 2.0, is that everyone thinks about food these days, and it's not about boiling water, and it's not about the basic knife skills because that stuff is um, not really great as a piece of content. It's it's not interesting. Foodies t- these days want a little more. They want to know about um, the different types of potatoes to use uh, for the different scenarios. They want to know about like the history of gochujang. They want to know about like deeper deeper things, and 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 really they have this inquisitive nature that really we are striving to attack with these hundred questions. So some of them, yeah, are pretty esoteric. Like we talk about growing sprouts. It's the last question in the book and you know, it's a little hippy dippy and I, I respect it though, because we think that making falafels with homemade or homegrown sprouts is like the greatest thing. Um, and we think the foodie 2.0 are people who want to grow their own sprouts. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, go on Jeff.
5: No, I was just going to say, as a, you know, I think a big part of the book was uh, this is about questions that will help you if you read them um, in the kitchen, outside of the kitchen, if you just want to understand about food. Um, but more so, you know, it's like even if you don't grow your own sprout, understanding the process will help you be a better shopper, a better restaurant eater, a better a better talker about food, a better informed consumer, um, which is better for restaurants, it's better for farmers, and it's better for your budget. Um, the understanding of, of how and of the why behind and the how we do things um, allows you to be a more kind of like free and uh, confident entrepreneurial of, about food in general.
2: I- that's very well said. And and reading this book, um, and I don't want to sound like I'm fanning out too much, but it already made me think like, well, I kind of figured this part on my own. This seemed unattainable to me, but if they're writing about this, then I feel that I can actually go after this piece of cooking and expand my repertoire. And it was like kind of leveraging up on knowledge. Um, speaking about knowledge, uh, it'd be very easy for the two of you just to be like, we are the outright experts in this and write uh, 100 answers to 100 questions, but that is not the case. There are a number of guest experts in the book. Uh, Tell me a little bit about who lent you their advice and knowledge and how you put them all together to answer some of the more difficult questions outside of your knowledge.
4: It's a great question because we we definitely know a lot of shit. I'm just kidding. We actually don't know a lot. We 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 needed other voices in the book, and we we certainly. I kind of took my journalistic instinct there and got in touch with a bunch of contributors and people I knew around food and and really it's about about getting into these topics that maybe we've experienced ourselves firsthand, but it isn't really our lives. So, for example, we talked to marijuana and Ronnie. Who's awesome? I don't know if he's been on your show. He's from Chaipani. Uh, he was in, he, sh- yeah, he, was, he yeah. was in
2: the book. Yeah, yeah, he he's was in the Snacky Tunes book. He was amazing.
4: Book, yeah, yeah. So we asked him about uh, about curry powder and the myth around curry powder, um, and how curry powder is not really a thing. How it's actually more like Madras curry and Vadavan and in. in, in french cooking and and really we had this really cool conversation and we, we distilled it down into three questions and there's examples of that from you know pre-krishna and Therese nelson the founder of black culinary history yoda mandalangi um our friend roy Choi talked about the explosion exploding korean american cooking scene so uh, these experts really sprinkled throughout the book bring um really needed um outside voice and perspective
5: yeah i think um I think there are a lot of areas where we were very lucky to get to learn, um, uh, probably even more than folks reading the book, because we, we spent, you know, just tons of time researching. And at the end of the day, um, uh, having somebody who who lives lives a culture, um, you know, speak to the food that they that they know and love um, is is going to be so much um, more poignant. Than us trying to translate it for them.
2: We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from the archives, and we'll be back with Matt and Daniel here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Mm Let's get into the questions there are 100 questions in here it was really hard for me to pick one to start, just to begin with so i want to start with the myths because i think that's a really great section because you get to a certain point in your career where you're past foodie 1.0 and you've maybe entered into foodie 2.0 and you feel afraid or uh imposter syndrome and you answer and anticipate a lot of things that might just be in people's heads Um, so let's start with, should I feel embarrassed to cook with canned beans? Because I'm in the South and I feel like there is such a debate over pre-soaking your beans versus canned beans. What is the myth here? What do you debunk? Should we, or should we not?
4: So canned beans, this derived from, um, kind of a troll, Daniel, Daniel this is like one mind. of the
5: one of the main things that inspired the whole book was me it's busting Matt's chops about he being embarrassed because I'm like, here we are writing this column for Fancy Magazine for Fancy Food people, and you're using canned beans. What gives?
4: Yeah, on my Instagram stories, he called me out publicly um, and and shamed me um, for using canned chickpeas. Uh, but really, we we sat down um, and had a real conversation about canned beans. Um, and we come to the conclusion that, Daniel, what do, you, what do you have to say?
5: Just like everything else in the world, um, almost every product has its place. And canned beans are absolutely exceptional when used um, in the right way. Um, I wouldn't necessarily highlight a canned beans as the centerpiece of the plate, but they absolutely work well for a myriad of, uh, of applications. Myriad of applications or just myriad applications?
4: Myriad applications, I think.
5: Yeah, I think there's no of there. What a weird word. No, no I sound so smart either. except when I don't use it right, then I just sound like a schmo. Put me back in the pizzeria.
2: <laughs> uh, all right, let's go on to another section. This sounds fancy. This sounds intimidating. What is it? Will you break down some of the most iconic dishes that people go, I'm going to stay away from it? Uh what is Kobe beef and is it really better? A wonderful question for anyone that's gone out and been questioned with, do I get the upsell or not? Chef, we'll start with you. What is it and is it better?
5: So, you know, uh, the, the, I think we get into the idea that what is Kobe beef? It's um, it's, a, it's a great marketing term. Um, and if you go to, uh, if you've had Japanese Wagyu beef that's been you know, uh, the, the, that's been raised, um, for it, the maximum amount of intramuscular fat, you have this extraordinary piece of meat that isn't like anything else you've ever had. It's not interchangeable with a steak. It's a different food product, um, that's can be incredibly delicious, but, uh, like a lot of fancy things, you know, people have been kind of stealing the name and labeling stuff Kobe that isn't necessarily Kobe. And, you're not always getting what you're necessarily paying for, or even, uh, 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 or being promised.
4: Matt, uh, anything to add? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll add. I mean, A5 Wagyu, Japanese Wagyu is is dope. Like we 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 love it. We've we've had it. We we we've we've had fortunate meals around New York and LA where we've had it presented to us or, or seared it ourselves in our kitchens. Uh, but there's American Wagyu. There's domestic Wagyu that takes the cow from Japan. I believe it's a brown a variety of brown cattle I'm, I'm not remembering the name but it is um bred and raised in America and and it has the marbling and the intensity that um that we uh covet with beef and it's it's great um and I have to echo Daniel's point about the marketing of Kobe it's been marketed um, I think Anthony Bourdain um, was probably the one who, who who he he threw he stabbed the dagger into the K- Kobe beef marketing campaign when he said you know Kobe sliders were for douchebags like that that was kind of a funny little anecdote from his his riffs but really he had a point like there really wasn't much more going on with Kobe beef outside of that name so um, I think it's delicious beef though
2: new section twelve favorite essential life changing things to cook forever. This has been a big debate between Darren, my co-host, and twin brother and I. How do I scramble eggs like a chef? I used to do a hard and fast. He did a slow, and I have now become a very slow convert. And I'm remiss to say that it is infinitely better. But chef, again, we'll start with you. How do I scramble an egg like a chef?
5: Well, you know, depends, I guess, if you're fast, fast order chef or, uh, or, you're, or you're talking Danielle Balloud. Look, Jacques, you, there, you go online and you watch Jacques Pepin make an omelet or scramble eggs um, and it's a thing of beauty. And that's definitely the inspiration that I take from and, and where I've learned to, to, to scramble eggs. I think he um, he kind of taught the world to love a scrambled egg and how to make it properly and how to turn it into an omelet. Um, so I'm a soft scramble guy myself but you know there's nothing better than like sitting at that diner and watching the guy crack the eggs and chop them up on the flat top a little brown on the outside maybe some melted cheap swiss cheese and ham in there you know a western omelet or a or a uh, a denver omelet make a guy happy so i'm american through through you know
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: I'll just add that when I grew up, I was a brown omelet guy. Like I was a hard omelet. My dad made it that way. Um, but then we worked on a story on taste about Jacques Pepin's famous famous omelets. And, and Joshua David Stein wrote it. It was great. A great piece. And um, that, that YouTube video that Daniel refers to from like 1993 of Jacques making an omelet with just a fork is, is so legendary. Scrambling
5: up like a, like a nonstick pan with a metal fork. You're just like, Jesus, French man, you're so great at what you do, but please.
4: I know it's so French. Um, and I think I I was a convert after I I watched that for the fifth time. Uh, incredible.
2: Um, all right. Uh, ingredients, misunderstood, undiscovered, overlooked and underappreciated. Uh, there's so many good ones here because I really have asked these questions so many times. Let's go with the controversial one. Should I cook with MSG?
4: Good question. Um, we thought about this question a lot. we We really wanted to make sure we we did our homework. We talked to Helen Rosner, who wrote this really remarkable piece about visiting an MSG factory for the New Yorkers. We have a sidebar interview with her. But the bottom line is that MSG is everywhere and the Chinese restaurant syndrome that's, um, you know, MSG causes headaches, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's been proven time and again to be a pretty xenophobic attack and full of junk science. As, as I was saying, MSG is everywhere. It's in potato chips, it's in, um, you know, sodas. And it's definitely in most of the food we eat at restaurants because def- restaurants cook with MSG all the time. We personally like MSG, but we like MSG with a recipe. It's not just about you know throwing some MSG in willy nilly into into your stew. Um, it's about cutting it with salt. We have like a recipe to cut MSG with salt.
5: Yeah, I think that um, MSG is is really misunderstood. It's naturally occurring in a lot of instances, so we consume it um, in a lot of ways that we that we wouldn't other uh, wouldn't suspect. Um, but when you're using it in its pure form, it can be a bit overwhelming. And so our goal is to say, this is an amazing ingredient that, you, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of, but you should learn how to use it so that you're maximizing its effect and, and, and making, making your food as delicious as it can be.
2: Uh, all right. Let's do one last question. Weekend cooking projects, is the juice worth the squeeze? and controversial again, COVID. What is sourdough? What is more to say about it? What about all these bros making bread? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I think like making, you know, making w- when you first, I understand why it's so magical and, and, and so alluring and so many people got into it because when you first take flour and water and you capture a living organisms that are floating around in the world and your bread comes out of the oven and you think, man, this is so much greater than the sum of its part. I mean, this is as close to alchemy as any, uh, anything in real life that I've ever can, can imagine. So like I, I'm all for it. Um, do I prefer sourdough in every instance? Absolutely not. It's a really distinct and strong flavor. Again, an ingredient to be, to be used in moderation for what you want it for. Um, the great thing that we did with food IQ that I'm really proud of is when, when you do have a sourdough starter, you got a lot of waste. So we looked at what can we use the waste for, um, so that, uh, this amazing byproduct that's very delicious, that costs a lot of money, um, cause you're constantly mixing in new flour and throwing it away. What can we use that for? That'll give us something that, um, that we can use.
4: And I'll have to add, uh, the way the book is structured is is really an immersive experience and as you know we have the answer about sourdough that daniel just outlined but we also have a recipe with each of these questions it's important to point that out because we believe that to really understand the question you got to make something or at least like walk through the recipe and it through the straps so We have this great cracker recipe using that extra sourdough starter where it's not bread, it's not pancakes, it's actually crackers that you can make ahead of time um, for a party or just to have around for snacking. Um, And so to fully understand why sourdough is not um, just about the bros and the tech guys making bread, it's about actually doing more with your starter.
2: Put in my place. Asked a dumb question, got two smart answers. (laughs) Just like I feel a little fly on the wall for your 10 years of conversations. Uh, The other beautiful thing about this book are the illustrations. They're really fun. They're great. They add a really nice layer to the also incredible photography. Who was the illustrator? And was there any inspiration of art direction you gave to them to capture the fun that this book carries?
5: I think that, you know, well, first of all, we had uh, a, there's a guy named Miguel Villalobos, Um, and you know, when Matt and I were talking about an illustrator for the book, traditional illustration, you know, we were, we were looking through a lot of talented people and we were thinking we really want to give somebody the opportunity to, to have fun with this, um, and to showcase their art. Um, Miguel does have a good, a good amount of illustration, uh, experience, but he's a fine artist. Um, and it was his sense of humor and. You know, he has a unique way of looking at the world. So when we were talking about questions, um, you know, he saw something in us and in what we're talking about um, and in the answer that might have been a bit unusual and illustrated it. So we really, after the first couple of conversations, said, Listen, you're amazing. Why don't you just run with it? Um, Scribble all over the pages, and then we will give you feedback if there's anything that we, we want to see more of, but um, but we let him really express his art. And I think that's the greatest collaborations are when people trust each other um, and get to really have as much fun as they want. And you get something that like sourdough is greater than the sum of its parts.
4: Nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'll talk about our photography. We had a cookbook veteran, Ed Anderson, uh, photographing. And, and Ed is such a pro. And, and he shot the book with Daniel in, in Daniel's house in Venice, California. Uh, and Ed is is mostly a travel photographer. Um, he, you know, he shoots books for Katie Parla and, and he shoots books Brad, uh, Parson, he, he, he's always on the road. So I guess during COVID he couldn't really be on the road. So he found this project, our project to shoot in California and just really just absolutely pleasure to work with.
5: Yeah. I feel like every now and then you get a team of folks that come together because Lizzie had so uh, Matt, Matt, Matt was really insistent on, um, on, uh, uh, on, on having somebody have a cohesive vision for the art direction of the book and, and help us along. Um, and and hired a person that he had worked you had
4: worked with lizzie before she's from 10 speed press she's an in-house um, art director and we, we we had known each other but um yeah we found lizzie allen she's she really helped us bring the book to life
2: that is uh truly incredible and chef to your point you know we talk so much about the common language between chef and musicians and how they're able to articulate their desires through various creative practices. And it's also amazing to see it when it comes to artist to chef, which we haven't really covered so much. But obviously if you were probably in their shoes and like, look, let me just cook you a meal. (laughs) You tell me if you don't like it, you get the same thing. And it really has its own strong identity. So it's great to hear that it came from almost no direction except choose your own adventure. Um, I would be remiss to not have both of you on here um question 101 which is what are your playlists and what are you listening to when you're cooking and or doling out advice and it can either be a record an artist uh a station but i'm so curious to what you listen to while doing this or when you were doing your final cramming last moment copy edits for this book what you're what you're cranking (laughs) just to get through it
4: i love this question so much i used to be a music writer i worked at uh you know, publications and, and honestly, my, my, my musical taste is pretty out there and eclectic. I, I just, Sloan is like one of my favorite bands ever, the most underrated. They're probably the best, greatest band in the history of, of the world. Um, I'm just going to say that Sloan. Um, But really um, I think when writing the book, um, I was listening to K jazz a lot, which is a long, long beach, California jazz station. I loved, I love a lot of their morning, um, the djs there um so that's one and then turnstile i listen to that turnstile album a lot um i listen to magdalena bay a lot too I, I actually like um a lot of i would call it more contemporary music which is a terrible word but i i i love modern music i think arlo parks is probably my favorite album of the year and i have to shout out westerman from two years ago westerman is slept on. So I, I, there was my, there was my burst of music right
5: there. I'm sorry. I just had to do that. Wow. I'm just like, I I listened to Sly and Sly and the Family Stone on repeat for the last 12 years straight. (laughs) Gets me amped
2: up. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, Matt, Daniel, thank you so much. Um, Where can people find the book, uh, get your newsletters. Um, You're doing weekly questions or answers to questions as well. Um, how can people follow along, get all the information and more? Where do they go? How do they follow you?
4: They can visit foodIQ.co. Uh, we do a weekly newsletter. Uh, it's really fun. We take a lot of questions from readers. Um, it's it's just a lot of, like Daniel and I hop on the Zoom and do these questions every couple of weeks. Um, and you can buy the book where you buy books.
5: Yeah, I mean you should definitely you should definitely if you are so inclined to um uh, go to a local bookseller, most of them should have it. We're we're lucky lucky to be published with a with a um with a publisher that has wide uh wide wide reaching. Um shout them out.
2: Uh, shout out your publisher.
5: Harper Wave who's done an, an absolutely extraordinary job for us and been ex- extremely supportive and everybody on their team has been wonderful. And so, you know, we're lucky to be with somebody that's mainstream enough to get the book out there for us. And then um, obviously all the online booksellers um, uh, support the book, which has really been great. So, you know, the goal for us is to inspire people to love food even more, cook more, talk about food. Um, So whether you buy the book or not, as long as you're chopping those onions, God bless you.
2: Amazing. Fine chop? Hard yeah, chop, fine, finely, chop
5: Finely chopped. You gotta find I uh, know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a I'm a rough chopper Robocoop kind of guy. You know, it's like Cuisinart or Kill.
2: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well thank you guys for joining. Um we're gonna play another song from our archives and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
6: With you, a house with you, a house with you, a home, so we can be alone. And I've been running, I've been hiding, I've been falling down and climbing back up where they think they belong. Oh, uh, let's go. you wouldn't try to tell me what you don't slipping on my shoes my tongue is swole my lips are bruised and I can't get up the hill and I've been jumping through some leaves and chopping down some cherry trees so I oh so I can tell so I can not tell the truth ears and eyes with a killer at your throat I wanna build a house with you I-
1: i Luya, the executive director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time in restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow SHIFT work on your favorite podcast app.
2: Welcome back, Snacky Tunes. You wanna introduce yourselves?
1: Hi,
7: I'm Juliana Barwick. I'm Nimai. <laughs> I'm i t- I'm backing up the lovely Juliana Barwick. Neemai is one of my best friends and she um she's in Prince Rama, which is one of the best bands in the entire world.
3: <laughs>
2: this is oh, just like keep going uh, so I have to say that your music is some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard um, when Thank Hannah you. sent it over to me to be like oh would you ever consider this for the radio show I was like absolutely and then duh. When, yeah first it was duh and then <laughs> then I was like it's like very specific and then when the Iceland I read about you recording in Iceland and, Ross, and then I was like oh now it begins to make sense
7: yeah. Yeah, it was a match made in heaven, I think. Yeah. Um, when were you over there? Um, spring two thousand twelve. Amazing.
2: Yep. What's it like being over there just recording music and being in the wild?
7: It's it's um surreal. I was every day I was like pinching myself, like, Wow, you are in Iceland and making music. Life is grand.
2: How did that uh like friendship start?
7: Alex sent me an email. Alex Summers, um, who ended up producing it. Um, Alex of, of you know Yunzi and Alex and, um, but Alex has done a bunch of different things. He's started producing for more people, and he's done a lot of like mixing and recording for Sigur and all of their like satellite projects. Um, so he sent me an email. It was just like. Uh, we love your music, and we would love to do something with you one day. And I, like, I ran a few laps around the couch, and <laughs> then I was like, woo, yes. And I sent an email back, and, and we just talked all year. That was 2011. So we talked all year long and made plans for me to come over and, and do it.
2: Uh, how many times you have to re- did you have to rewrite that email?
7: Um. Actually, it was like a total knee jerk reaction, and I just said, Yes! With like 15 exclamation yeah, points. Yeah, I was about to ask
2: how many exclamation points.
7: Yeah, I was like, I'm not, I can't control the nerdiness, I'm just gonna let it flow.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's better just to not, to like, not play it cool, just be like, fuck it.
7: Yeah, they're gonna find out anyway, so.
2: <laughs> like, two minutes in, like, you're gonna be like, your knees will be shaking, like, tears running down your face at the airport, just being like,
7: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think I responded just instantly. As soon as I saw the email, I just responded. Like, I cool. Even,
2: I can't even imagine getting like just be like oh, let me check my email and just getting.
7: Yeah, that was that was one of the biggest ones ever. So. Oh, were there others? Um, a <laughs> couple others. Um, but yeah, I up until that point, all my solo soloy stuff was like bedroom recordings with no one watching or listening or anything at all.
2: Did they say how they found out about your music? Uh, nope. Hmm. And you never asked?
7: Nope. <laughs> don't, don't push your luck. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> don't
2: push your luck. Just get in there. Uh, uh, let's hear a song. Yeah, let's hear a song.
7: Okay, cool. Um, so this first one is one half.
2: Finally, cheering. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: That was really great. This is like a perfect, there's like certain records that you, like winter records, like uh, I imagine like uh, nine degrees out and like bundled up and the sky is purple. come on. Come on. We're not there yet. No, but I'm saying when that happens. When that
7: happens, I'm leaving.
2: No, when that happens, Ah. this record will be uh, on play. There's just certain records that are like made for certain seasons.
7: Yeah, I was kind of like, I mean, we we recorded it um, in you know spring of 2012, and it didn't come out until August of last year, um, 2013. I I kind of I felt like it was a wintry record. But yeah. uh, things happen, and we had to release it in August. But that's um, <laughs> fine. Yeah, it's, fine. I, it's kind yeah. of wintry to me also. So well
2: for all the snacky tune fans out there they can get this ready for winter yeah um you were saying before that was your mom on the
7: backing track yeah
2: oh what's the what's that about
7: well um she i mean she's has a beautiful beautiful voice and i grew up listening to her sing you know all the time um so i was a
2: professional she just had a good voice
7: um she just has a great voice And um, I just always wanted her on a record. And I'd taken, like, my sister to Australia, and we were, like, in a city every day. And I took my dad to France and Portugal, and we were in a city every day. And it was my turn to take my mom somewhere, but she's not kind of like a a city-a-day kind of lady. Mm. And I just thought, this is perfect. She should go to Iceland with me. Um, and be on the record. and
2: Was she there the entire time?
7: No, not the entire time. I went twice, so she went the first time with me in February. And then I came back and did about five or six more weeks of work on it with Alex in May.
2: Real. It was terrible. The, the sacrifice. Did, I mean, did you delve into <laughs> Icelandic cuisine at all? Because they have some funky stuff over there.
7: Um... Not a ton. I just, I saw signs a lot that was like, our special today is whale and puffin. And I was like, oh, that makes me want to cry.
2: <laughs> they have this, I think it's like this rotten fish that they bury.
7: Oh, yeah. I can't remember what the name of that is. Lufthik?
2: Something like that? It's I don't like know. And they also, they also, technically, they also though, pony. It's, it's one step up from Scrapple.
3: Yeah.
7: Yeah. <laughs> this is like the fermented shark yeah, fer- stuff the fermented they bury. Shark stuff. Yeah. And it's Ooh. like, I've watched a ton of Anthony Bourdain over the years, and that's the one thing that he was like, I can't, I can't, no. Like, I'll eat anything else, like...
2: it sounds terrifying.
7: Yeah, so, I don't know.
2: Fermented shark.
7: I'm sorry, I didn't get too, too, too adventurous with the puffin or the... Uh, for a minute chart.
2: I don't even think you need to apologize. I don't I think I'm a <laughs> either. and I think I would be You know the, the upsetting thing is they serve the puffin with the head still on. Uh, no. Oh they don't. no
7: Get out of here. You're fired. They're so from snack. cute. Uh,
2: and then you also had a children's choir on there, right? Which is like
7: Um That's a fancy way of saying <laughs> that you can um, script it to children. <laughs> that's a fancy way of saying that uh, Goggy is the basis for Cigaros. He has a beautiful teenage daughter and, and she has some beautiful teenage friends and they came to the Sung Lane studio and we recorded with them for a day and paid them in pizza and ice cream. Yes. <laughs> That's all teenagers want anyway. They were yeah. stoked. They were like, Yes. That's what
2: they would have spent their money on. They would have you just cut out the ordering. Exactly.
7: Them. Yeah, and they they'd recorded on some Cigaros stuff too. So, yeah, that's where the. No
2: child labor laws in Iceland.
7: I guess not. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Should we hear another song? Yeah, let's do another Another song. song.
7: Cool. (laughs) I guess we can do that.
2: What's this one called?
7: This one is Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake.
2: That's a good like do you wink do you wink a lot when you finish songs?
7: I only wink at Juliana. Oh, <laughs> it's a very Special friendship. Oh yeah. How did you winking. two
2: meet?
7: We met in Istanbul. Istanbul. Really? Yep. Both of our bands were playing together at this festival.
2: Okay, a well, festival.
7: I don't know. I think it was in a different language. Okay. I don't Uh, remember. (laughs) Uh, I think Bant Bant Mag put it together. I can't remember the exact name of the festival but um it was so fun it was so fun and every people in Istanbul are just freaking awesome and that place is ridiculously beautiful and um it was me and Prince Rama and Moon Duo and just Mm. a bunch of like really really amazing people psych
3: get out
6: there
7: yeah, it was fantastic. And then we just kind of like followed each other around. We were at north we were, by northeast together. We were in and then, Australia together. And we did a we did like the Sugar Mountain Festival in Melbourne oh. and Mona Foma in Tasmania. We were just I was following them around a lot.
2: How was Sugar Mountain? So
7: How was it? Great. Yeah. That was off the hook. John Mouse mm. played. So and he I got, kinda fell in love with your sister, I think. Him and my sister had like talking forever. Yeah, they were Uh, just
2: some festival love sessions.
7: No, uh, they they are both like complete brainiacs. Mm -hmm. So they were just bouncing off of each other. It was like. Watching ping pong. Yeah, well, Julian and I just sit there and like wink at each other. Yeah. We're like, "Hey, I like your nail polish." <laughs> yeah, John Mouse and her sister were talking about like the universe. Yeah, <laughs> it went all over the place. And we're Religion, just like, "Cool." Everything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so much drinking. I blew an eye out, actually.
7: <laughs> <laughs> My falsies fell off.
2: <laughs> so, um, what what's next? Tours, musings, wandering um, around in a snow filled. New York City.
7: Oh, I hope not. Yeah. No,
2: it's coming. It's gonna be brutal winter. I can feel it. Even
7: worse than the last one because I was I missed last year's winter Same. and everyone was like, "You're lucky you're not here" because it just it was a nightmare. Here. Yeah. nightmare. I missed it too.
2: It just kept it wouldn't stop snowing. I don't get it.
7: <laughs> I mean, it means I can listen
2: to your album longer, but.
7: <laughs> um, what's next for me is uh, fun, fun, fun. I'll be there. Oh, sweet. You want to hang out? Yeah. Duh.
2: How's your winking game, Darren? <laughs>
7: <laughs> Don't worry. You have some time to work on
2: it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys, can't go out tonight working my winking game for fun, fun, fun.
7: <laughs> Me and J-Bar are going to wink at each other. Wink. Um, fun, fun, fun. And then on November 20th, I'm playing a lighthouse um, on the cliffs of Norway, and that's real. <laughs>
2: that is a real sentence. That is a
7: real sentence. Yeah, and I get to sleep there.
2: Wait, what is what? I don't even alone. Know I, I must survive the night. Yeah, <laughs> if you yeah. survive the night, you can play a brunch set the next day.
7: Exactly. Yeah, I, What, what I can't is it? Wait, I don't. It's just like a one-off. Um, uh, just casual one-off. Yeah, I don't know. I'm playing Legasu, which is my booking, my Europe booking agent's um, festival that he does in Utrecht, um, Legasu. and I'm doing the like 24-hour drone fest with like. Uh, William Basinski and um, a few other awesome people. You can stand for the whole thing. Probably not unless they give me treats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Red Bull?
2: Five hour energy drink? Uh,
7: no thank you. That stuff makes me I haven't even ever tried that because I know it would make my heart feel really bad. You never know until you try. That's no, been, it, no, it makes it. me feel like
2: my heart is sitting outside of my chest.
7: Yeah, I, in a don't, good way. I don't think I like that way. feeling. Look how cute this little girl is! Little my God, it's, it's always act? it's
2: always the kids that can like look in.
7: <laughs> so cute! Yeah. Um. So that's November, and then good. December is just holiday time, hanging out with my little nephew and stuff. Where are you from? Um. I I was born in Louisiana, but. My whole family's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my sister just had the cutest baby in the world last Halloween. So that's where. Oh, do you know
2: I'm... what the kid's going as this year?
7: I think he's going to be Charlie Brown.
2: Okay, uh, probably fine. has the right haircut. Yeah,
7: yeah it's not going to be too hard. He's going to get the shirt, and he basically looks like it.
2: Uh, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we want to make sure we get one more before we so have uh, Ben Stevenson. Um, but uh, where can people find you? Instagram, Twitter, Smoke Signals.
7: Everyth- I mean, it's Juliana Barwick, Twitter, Instagram, website. No,
2: J-Bar? Not,
7: J-bar? not yet.
2: <laughs> that's your future hip-hop creator? Yeah.
7: Yeah, that's when I get the cover of Us Weekly. I'll be J-Bar.
2: j Bar's Dirty Laundry.
7: When I start dating, um, who do I want to date? Zac Efron. Solid- <laughs> who? <Ew! laughs> Harry Styles. Oh, oh, yeah, Harry Styles. Yeah.
2: No one can see how much you're blushing on the radio. Even
7: like, though he's, like, 20 years younger than me, no big deal. <laughs> that's cool. Whatever. Yo, yeah. it's never too late to be a cougar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, it. You can do recommend. that your whole life. <laughs> yeah, get after
2: it. Uh, so what's this last track you're going to play for us?
7: We're going to do prize winning, because it's drummy, and that's what Nimi does. Also, my sister did a remix of this song. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a Matrimony Remixes uh, EP that... I put out on uh, Asthmatic Kitty. And Love I, that I feel label. Like, Love I it. Feel like people don't really know about this Matrimony remixes EP, but it's pretty dope. It has um, Tarika from Prince Rama did one, and Diplo and Lunas did one. My friend Brian did one. My friend Roberto did one. And
2: is that their DJ name? my friend Brian? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> be pretty good though.
7: Alias Pale, Alado Negro, Prince Rama. Diplo and Lunas is pretty dope
2: it's pretty that great. Diplo guy watch out for him yeah. big things in 2015
7: yeah he's doing he's doing okay he's for doing himself okay. he's doing fine I think he's gonna be okay
2: yeah uh, alright well um,
7: that's the impression I get
2: <laughs> uh, well thanks for thanks for being on the show
7: thanks for having us <laughs>
0: about
3: food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
4: This program is powered by Simplecast.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter